Thank you for tuning in to the Calvary Monterey podcast. Please visit calvary.com to learn more about our church. To keep connected with us, follow us on Instagram, subscribe to our YouTube channel, and join our Calvary Connection. The vision of our church is to make Jesus famous. When Jesus is famous, everything changes, and he becomes our passion because his love is better than life. Today's message is from our monthly growth nights that are on the first Sunday of every month at 5.30 p.m. Pastor Nate teaches about being Jesus' famous men. Enjoy. All right. Good evening, guys. It's cool to be with you guys again. And uh, like I said this morning, just got back from Israel on Friday night. We just had a great time. You know, just I I pray that uh, if we go again and, you know, I'd like to kind of make it a regular part of our church's rhythm to head over to Israel because it's just a great opportunity to kind of make the Bible come alive in your life. So it's kind of like a biblical immersion tour of Israel. Um, But of course, I need to kind of get some distance from the trip and pray about it and make sure it's something the Lord wants us to be about and be doing. But if we uh, venture over there again, man, I'd really love to have you guys consider uh, making that a part of your life and uh, coming out. So uh, be thinking about that. Uh, today, our verse is going to be from 2 Corinthians chapter 3, and our subject is Jesus' famous men are being restored by Christ. So last month, we started this 10-month study, so one study each month, thinking about how Jesus' famous uh, men are uh, motivated by Christ. You know, there's this epiphany, uh, as we thought about it from Ephesians chapter 1, that we need to receive where our eyes are open, where we begin understanding how great Jesus is and what he's done for us. And so we were thinking about the inward motivations, like why do I want to be a man of God? Why do I want to be a biblical man? Well, it all starts with the gospel. It starts with Jesus. So kind of having our eyes opened to that. But tonight we want to talk about how we're restored, the process of restoration. And I want to talk to you about it from 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. So Let's read it together, and then we'll dive in. It says in verse 18, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image, from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So again, God, we pray that you'd speak to us from this passage and this concept of transformation, being restored into Christ's image, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, I think the, the subject of transformation or restoration, to borrow the word that I'm using tonight, it's a, it's a powerful concept. I think it's one that's especially important to believing men. Uh, we live in a time where men are most needed, but we're being told that we're in a time where we are least needed. But the truth of the matter is that men are needed. I recently heard a a woman who had come out of the sex trade, had been rescued out of the sex trade, and who now has a ministry to help rescue other women from uh, the slave trade. And she said in her story She said her experience is that men need to step up more than ever. 
Uh, she had the conviction that she would not have been set free had it not been for men who had involved themselves in rescuing her. Uh, that she just was in a place where she was so convinced and so stuck in what she was in that even if an opportunity presented her, itself for her to be set free, she wouldn't have taken it. But it was because men reached into her life and pulled her out that she was able to be rescued. She said that men need to both deny their worst impulses and follow the leading of their better impulses for the betterment of this world. And I think that this is true. The world needs men who have been restored into the version of manhood that God created. And this is precisely the transformation that God has in mind for us. When God transforms his men, he's restoring them to a version of masculinity that he created, that he made. In our text tonight, this little verse, verse 18 of 2 Corinthians chapter 3, it speaks plainly of the possibility of this restoration. It's something that, according to Paul the Apostle, who wrote this verse, every Christian can experience. According to the passage, uh, we can approach God, it says, with something called an unveiled face. This is taken from two different concepts that come earlier in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. The first concept is of Moses, who when he went and spent time in God's presence, he took a veil off of his face to communicate and fellowship and have friendship with God. But because when he would leave God's presence, the afterglow of God's glory would fade, and he didn't want people to be discouraged by the fading reality of God's glory, he would put a veil on his face so that people wouldn't see the fading glory. That's one part of the idea. The second part of the idea is that Paul communicates that Israel, modern Israel, modern Jewish people have a veil that lies over their hearts when they read the Old Testament. There's something that keeps them from really truly knowing uh, the Lord. Not that he can't break through, but there's a barrier, there's a veil that exists. And what Paul seems to be saying is that we, as believing men, can take the veil off when we experience the Lord. And as opposed to the temporary change that God produced in Moses, something that faded as time went by, we can experience a lasting and permanent change because we're on this side of the cross. We're experiencing the new covenant. Now, the two ingredients that are needed to experience this kind of transformation are, number one, justification, and number two, time in God's presence. You have to be born again, number one, and you have to actually spend time with Jesus, number two. But if those things are happening, then a man can expect the outcomes that this passage offers. All right, so tonight from this one verse, I want to ask three questions. Number one, why do we need restoration? Why, why would we even want the transformation that this verse proposes. Uh, number two, to what are we being restored? You know, it's one thing to talk about transformation. It's one thing to talk about being restored. But what are we being transformed into? And then number three, how, according to this verse, does restoration actually happen? What's the process? How does it actually occur? All right, so the first question, 
Why do we need restoration? In other words, why not learn to just self-accept the way that we are? Why not just remain the way that we are? Why enter into a process whereby we become something different, something renewed, something transformed from what we are today? And I think this is a serious question for men to wrestle with today. In our our society, it seems like it's hell-bent on stripping every ounce of masculinity from you. Now, this might make you either angry at yet another voice telling you to be different, or worse, it might make you agreeable. You might agree uh, with society's newfangled definitions of manhood. So when I say that we need restoration, I want to be clear. God wants you to be a man. If you're here in this room, God wants you to be a dude. He made you the way that he made you. He's not trying to destroy everything that is manly from you. Restoration or transformation doesn't mean that he's trying to take away what is masculine in you. God is not interested in an androgynous humanity where one can barely discern the difference between men and women. That's not what God has designed. Well, the reason that we need God's transformation, it has nothing to do with his desire to bleach out all that is masculine from us. In other words, we don't need restoration because God hates what men are. No, we need restoration because God loves men. God made men. God had a vision for what men could be. He placed the first man in the Garden of Eden to tend it and to work it. He wanted that man to walk in fellowship with himself. He created men to have dominion over this earth, to exercise self-control as they learn to master their environment and develop the raw creation that God gave them. He wants men to become purposeful beings who work hard, are a complement to the other sex, successfully confronting temptation, accepting responsibility beyond just themselves for others, and leading like Jesus. That's a vision that God has of what men could be. But before I develop this vision for what God is restoring us to, I have to point out how original sin initiated a terrible decay that hinders us in our pursuit of the manhood that God designed. You know, I'm kind of riffing off of Genesis 1 and 2 when I talk about the manhood that God created. And when you read Genesis 1 and 2, everything's good. God sees all this stuff. It's good. It's good. It's good. Every day, everything that he makes, he sees it's good. In fact, the first thing that he sees that is not good is when he sees Adam in his aloneness. He says, that's not good. And he gives Adam a woman. He solves his aloneness, brings a companion into his life. But in Genesis chapter 3, Adam upended God's design when he surrendered his leadership role to Eve. He let her take the lead and he ate the fruit because she encouraged him to do it and catastrophe ensued. They ate, but more importantly, he ate the fruit. And just as God said, the wages of sin 
was death. Eventual physical death for both Adam and Eve, but also immediate spiritual death, a separation from God. And sin's impact on Adam and Eve, though it would be slow and steady and decaying in nature, it was God's way of accounting Adam's sin and bringing it to all of his offspring. Because Adam sinned, in other words, we are all born in sin. Look at what Paul says about this in Romans 5, verse 12. He said, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, that's Adam, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. Now later on, we're going to consider how Jesus reverses this and how Jesus becomes the new head of a new people. So Adam is the head of humanity, but Jesus, he becomes the head of a new humanity for those who believe in him. But what this verse is telling us in part is that by birth in Adam, we are not what we were meant to be. Men are not naturally as God designed them but instead, in a sense, are a factory of counterfeits. But the good news is that Jesus can take the warped and broken counterfeit that Adam has produced and restore him into the image that God originally planned. God can do this. God can restore us. That's why I'm using that word rather than transformation, the word restoration. But here's the, the bad news. The good news is that Jesus can restore us, that he can remake the image that he intended within us. But the bad news is that we often don't get to that point because of how we respond to the concept of sin and its effects. Let me explain to you what I mean. A lot of times we don't enter into God's restorative work because we minimize the impact of sin in our lives. We tell ourselves that we aren't that bad and we dismiss, excuse, or justify our sins. We might even as Christian men tell ourselves that as long as we're not committing those big, ugly, massive, universally abhorred sins, maybe things like adultery or abuse or violence, we tell ourselves if we're not committing those things, then we're just fine. But such easy dismissal of sin, brothers, it keeps us from God's best. If your list of sins that you think is bad is synonymous with sins that you'd probably never commit anyways, then what need would you ever have for restoration? No, we can't settle. We have to recognize that sin is like yeast that permeates everything. We cannot minimize its impact. You know, if you were restoring an old classic car, you'd never buy it in its beat-up condition, take a nice brand-new bumper, throw it on the front, and say, I'm done. It's restored. You'd know that you weren't finished. You'd see the old paint job. You'd see the dents. You'd see the beat-up upholstery. And you'd know that there was still a lot of work to accomplish. But this is what a lot of believers do. They minimize sin, believing that there's nothing more for God to do in their lives. Instead, we should confess that sin has impacted much more than we readily 
acknowledge. Think of it like this. Here's some examples. If as men were decimated by a lack of career advancement, or we want others to think that we're more intelligent than we actually are, or we want to appear strong and confident, even if internally that's not the reality, then what we should do is see those evidences as evidences of the pride of life at work within, which is one of the major sins. When we lustily gaze at a beautiful woman, when we slide into long hours of surfing the internet or watching Netflix, when we overeat or oversleep or overdrink, we should see these as evidences of the lust of the flesh, the desire to feel. And when we crave a newer car or a bigger truck, when we wish for a better wife, when we want more money, we have to see these as an evidence of the lust of the eyes. We have to recognize that sin has done a nasty work on our souls and that Christ can restore us from these things. We mustn't, impact, we mustn't minimize sin's impact on our lives. It's destroyed manhood, and Jesus came to save us from its eternal judgment, yes, but also to save us from its present experience. We must not underestimate its effect on us. Okay, that's one mistake, but there's another mistake that we sometimes make. You know, we will sometimes minimize sin's impact, but on the other hand, we will often overstate sin's impact as well. We might conclude that we're stuck, impossibly bound up in transgression, unable to climb out of the pit that we're in. You know, once a dog, always a dog kind of mentality. And this feeling is worsened, I think, when Christians are unable to differentiate between temptation and sin. With sin, a desire conceives and turns into an act. With temptation, the battle is on, but it's not yet sin. It's just temptation. Now, you might think that I'm playing games with words, playing semantics, but I want you to think about what James said in James 1, verse 14 and 15. He said, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. I hope you see the difference there. Temptation is one thing, but temptation is not the sin. Temptation exists. It's the bait appealing to the desire. When it conceives, then the sin comes, and sin, when it is full grown, according to James, brings forth death. But many men, when they experience temptation, feel that they've already sinned, that they've completely lost, and they give up the battle, and they enter all the way in. And that misunderstanding of the difference between temptation and sin has cost many believers. You see, the truth that I'm trying to communicate is that we are neither stuck in sin nor barely impacted by it. Like leaven, sin has permeated everything about us in our experience. But because of Christ, victory, transformation, and restoration can occur.
This makes the words of the Apostle Paul possible in Romans 12, verse 2. He said, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Okay, so why do we need restoration? That's the first question that I'm trying to ask tonight. Well, it's because of sin's alarming effects. But with Jesus came a new covenant where restoration is possible. And for this we rejoice because I hope by now you'll agree with me that restoration is needed. Amen? We need it because sin has impacted us. Okay, the second question that I want to ask tonight, though, is to what are we being restored? I mean, in a sense, you could say everyone's experiencing transformation, right? You know, no one is the same at age 40 as they were at age 20. Everybody changes. Everybody experiences a degree of transformation. Everybody changes. So as a believer, when we're talking about biblical transformation, biblical restoration, what is our destination? Okay, our text tonight gives us the answer right there in 2 Corinthians 3, verse 18. It says in verse 18 that we are being transformed into, here's the quote, we are being transformed into the same image. Okay, what image do we become the same as? What is this same image? Well, the beginning of the sentence says, and we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image. So we become the same image as the glory of the Lord that we behold. All right, hopefully right now there's a, another question that's popping up in your mind. Hopefully the question is, well, what's the glory of the Lord? If that's what I'm being transformed into, the same image of the glory of the Lord I've been beholding, what in the world is the glory of the Lord? Well, in the passage leading up to this verse, Paul uses the word glory a lot. And it's used to describe the pinnacle of God's revelation at various stages of redemptive history. So when Moses came and the law was given on Mount Sinai, remember that story? He's up on the top of the mountain and he's receiving the Ten Commandments. In that moment, Paul says, it came with glory. That was a glorious moment. Uh, but Paul says, when Jesus came with a better covenant than that old covenant, that covenant came with, Paul said, surpassing glory. It was glory so strong that the old covenant law appeared to have no glory. So here's what the glory of the Lord is. The glory of the Lord seems to be whatever God's brightest and clearest revelation is at that moment. What's the loudest, clearest thing, the most recent thing that God has said and communicated? That is God's glory. That's the glory of the Lord. During Moses' day, the glory of the Lord would have been the law and the prophets. But in our day, the glory of the Lord is Jesus Christ. That's the glory of the Lord. Like Hebrews 1 says in verse 2 and 3, in these last days, God has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of 
of God's nature. So our little 2 Corinthians 3.18 verse, along with the rest of the New Testament, tells us that the Spirit is working to reshape justified people into Christ's image. That's the answer to the question. To what am I being restored? It's actually the wrong question. The question should be, to whom am I being restored? You're being restored by the Spirit of God into the image of Jesus himself. Now let me pause for a second. The idea that the Father is shaping his followers by the Spirit into the image of Christ, I think it's challenging to the modern man. You know, first, we we hear constant messages about acceptance without change. You know, in this view, any talk of transformation or restoration, it's an offense to the inner self. But here's what I want to say about that self-acceptance view. It requires complete and utter ignorance about original sin and its effects on mankind. Secondly, we hear another message about being whoever we want to be. In this view, men are self-made. We need little help. We can be whatever we want to be. But this view requires an overestimation of what man can do without God. It's a true uh, babble kind of uh, perspective on life. We can succeed without God. But third, we hear constant messages from the culture telling us what men should be. And these messages compete for followers, and they often are contradictory. You know, men should be rugged, some people say. Men should be sensitive, other people say. Men should be strong, or men should not use their strength. Men should be generous and selfless, or men should be wealthy and successful. Men should be faithful, or men should play the field. Men should help women and children, or men are in the way of women and children. Men should be strong leaders, or men should listen and follow more. These are some of the messages that we hear, but these views treat the shifting sands of culture like they're the timeless words of Scripture. But we are men who want to build our lives on the rock of Christ. So we must turn to him for his definition of what we need to be restored into. Okay, but why would I call this a process of restoration? You know, if God is trying to shape us into the image of his son, why would we ever think of that as a restorative process? You know, to restore something means to bring it back to its original glory, its original condition. When I I was born, I wasn't born like Jesus, and then somehow lost it, and now I need that to be restored into my life. We were born into Adam's image. But when you think about it, God had much better plans for Adam than Adam experienced. Plans that Christ fulfills as, listen to me now, the second Adam, if you will. Paul summarizes this idea this way in Romans 5, 17. He said, for if... Because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man. Much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. 
So for, for our purposes, we can think of Jesus as the new Adam. When you believe in him, Jesus becomes your new family head. You were in Adam, but now you're in Christ. You're not destined to be like the Adam who failed, but can be restored to what, to what Christ wanted him to be, Christ who succeeded. You can live out God's original intention. So let's think for a second about what God originally intended for Adam to be. Four things I want to show you. God intended for Adam to represent his image here on earth, and renewed men will image God like Jesus did. Well, we get this from Genesis chapter 1 on the sixth day of creation. It says in verse 26 that God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Now, men are made in God's image in that they're like him. They're like God. Now, you might have noticed or you might have heard in the Bible that says that God is spirit. God is spirit. And when I wake up in the morning, I don't really feel that way. I feel very physical, very fleshly, you know, very fatigued and all of that. Uh, and so we might feel like there's a difference between us. You know, God is spirit. I have a body. How can I image who God is? But that difference actually highlights the very point of what we're meant to image. God has given us bodies so that we can image who he is, so we can imitate him. Without a body, as spirit, God sees, God speaks, God serves, God loves. And he's given us bodies so that we could do the same, even though it's in a more limited sense. So we're made in his image in that we're like him. Now, Adam did not succeed in doing this. He did not succeed in that initial attempt at imaging God, but Jesus succeeded where Adam failed. When Jesus stepped into the region of the Galilee so many years ago, everything that he did was a perfect representation of God's heart. You know, you read the Gospels, and what you're discovering when you read of Jesus, his healing, his compassion, his leadership, or his sacrifice, what you're witnessing is a man imaging God. He's the express image of who God is. He's imaging God. And men, we're called to image God. We're called to be his instruments here on earth, representing him well. But a second thing that Adam was meant to be was one who not only imaged God, but exercised dominion. This is a very significant one when it pertains to men today. God intended for Adam to exercise dominion, and renewed men will exercise dominion like Jesus did. Uh, this comes from Genesis 1, verse 28. If we could put that on the screen, it says that God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. You see, we're made in God's image and that we're meant to be like him, but we're also made in God's image in that we are an extension of him. You know, in ancient times, what kings would do is 
when they ruled a region that was far from their capital, they would set up images of themselves in those faraway places. It was meant to communicate, I have dominion in this realm, though I live far away from this realm. Even the image was meant to represent the true power behind the image. And that's what godly men are meant to be. We're meant to demonstrate the image of God throughout the world so that people can know that God is the one who has the true dominion. By his will, God created. He spoke things into existence. His word divided water and land, the outer space and the atmosphere and species. On the first six days of creation, God expressed his dominion and will, and God's intention for humankind was that they'd express his likeness by practicing dominion themselves. You see, God did all of these things with love, with self-control, and faithfulness. And God's people were meant to do the same thing, to steward all that God had created. They were to be in, not out of control. This dominion that I'm talking about puts us in a position above the created world. We're part of it, but made special over it by the God who put his image on us. Now, of course, Adam did not succeed in exercising dominion. We know that. But Jesus succeeded where Adam failed. Don't you think of Jesus when he came onto the earth? Can't you see him as a, as a man who expressed dominion? I mean, he on the first day of his public ministry in the region of Galilee, walks into a synagogue and there's a demon-possessed man who's freaking out and confronting him. And Jesus silences the man and delivers the demon. That's dominion, it's power, it's control. People came to him with sicknesses, with diseases, and Jesus had dominion. Lepers wanted to be cleansed, and Jesus had dominion. He was able to cleanse them. He even had dominion over nature itself. That's why the disciples freaked out so much after Jesus had done so many miracles But then on the Sea of Galilee, when he calmed the storm, that one caused them to say, who then is this that even the wind and the wave obey him? In their minds, to calm a storm was in a bigger category than casting out demons or healing leprosy. They they knew that Jesus came with dominion. He had dominion over himself because he always did that which pleased the Father. And this is a vision that God has for us, that we would be men who retake that purpose of his and have dominion here on earth. But a third thing I want you to to see that Adam was meant to be was someone who worked with purpose. God intended for Adam to work with purpose, and renewed men will work with purpose just like Jesus did. You know, after God created Adam, it says in Genesis 2.15, that the Lord took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. Sometimes people have this idea of a perfect world or an idea of heaven itself as if there won't be any work whatsoever. But did you know that before sin entered into the world, God gave Adam a job? He gave him a task. Some of you guys 
love your work. You love what you're doing. And sometimes you're made to feel badly about that. But that's a godly thing. God called us to work. He wants us to work. He wants us to build and curate and subdue the earth. And God gave Adam this job of tending and cultivating the garden that he'd given to him. Now, of course, later, work became more difficult because of sin. God announced to Adam that because of his sin, the ground would bear thorns, that he would eat bread by the sweat of his brow. But Adam was originally called to cultivate the gift that God had given to him. The earth was his to enjoy. He was called to work, and so are we. Now, I think that Adam's work likely had a spiritual component attached to it. His work, in other words, was a way for him to worship God. In fact, some scholars even believe that the word work in Genesis 2.15 would be better translated to worship and obey. Like the later priests in God's tabernacle, Adam was the man on God's ground serving and loving the Lord. So Adam's work was actually his worship, a way for him to serve God in his holy tabernacle called earth. So as God's men, we need to see our workplaces as worship places. And we got to go to work with the understanding that our work is at least part of our worship. Paul said it like this in Colossians 3.23. He said, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. That means that we're to consider our work as being done for Jesus, not for our manager or employer or customer primarily, but for him. The quality and goodness of our work is a form of worship. Now, Adam did not succeed in doing this in working with purpose, but Jesus succeeded where Adam failed. He came to accomplish a work for God and spent every day of his life devoted to that mission. All right, the last thing I want you to see about Adam or that we should be restored to that Adam was meant to be is that God intended for Adam to successfully confront temptation and lead, and renewed men will confront temptation and lead like Jesus. When you go back into the Genesis account and you see the temptation that Eve experienced, it almost appears like she's all by herself. It says in Genesis 3 verse 6, after conversing with the serpent, that when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. There's Adam at the end of the dialogue with or conversation with the serpent. Adam is present. His, her husband, it says, was with her and he ate. Now, Eve, of course, fell to the three sins that I mentioned earlier, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. It says in 1 John 2, 16, all that's in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And Eve fell to all three things. She saw that the tree was good for food. She saw that it was a delight to the eyes. And she saw that it was desired to make one wise. And she gave herself to this sin, and everything changed so quickly. And she took the fruit, 
She gave some to her husband. He's there with her, and he ate. The first domino had been pushed, and quickly all the others fell. Sin entered in. But that last detail might be a shock. You know, there was Adam with her. All the while, Adam was there. All the verbs in the previous conversation are plural. Adam listened in to the serpent and Eve having this conversation. But he was far from an innocent bystander. Paul's commentary on this event is simple. In 1 Timothy 2.14, he said, Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived. Adam was not deceived. He knew exactly what he was doing that day. And he went right along with the temptation. He gave in. You see, Adam, he acted with his eyes wide open. Rather than stand up and defend his bride, he gave in to rebellion against God. Adam did not lead his wife that day, but instead followed her into error, and God's order was overturned. Now, Jesus is a way better husband than Adam would ever be. Adam's sin led to unrighteousness for all of humanity, his bride, and beyond, but Jesus' act of righteousness on the cross leads to perfection for all who believe in him. He's better than Adam. It says in Romans 5, verse 18, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. So Adam, he did not succeed in confronting temptation like he should have and leading his wife like he should have, but Jesus succeeded where Adam failed. You know, we were in Israel, like I said, last week and the week before, and you know, you actually go to the region that Jesus was tempted in the wilderness for 40 days and for 40 nights. And let me tell you, it's anything but a Garden of Eden kind of environment. It's dry, it's desolate, it's the exact opposite of the situation that Adam was in. He was in the wilderness starving rather than in a garden full and satiated. He was in the wilderness, in the wild, rather than in a garden. He was bombarded with the full force of Satan's temptations, rather than a super obvious, like, don't listen to that snake kind of situation. And Jesus succeeded where Adam did not succeed. He led his bride, leads his bride into victory. All right, so that's a little bit of the vision of what Jesus is trying to restore us into. He's trying to bring us back into a place where we confront temptation and lead well, where we work with purpose, where we exercise dominion, and where we image God. All right, so that's what. But let's close with our last question, our third question. How does this happen? How does restoration happen? We've thought about why we need it. We've thought about what it is what he's turning us into. But how does it actually happen according to 2 Corinthians 3, verse 18? What's the process of restoration? How are we restored? What's this journey look like? Well, look at the answer our text gives us. It's kind of in three parts. Number one, it says restoration happens when we behold the glory of the Lord. Number two, it says when we do that, we're transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. And number three, 
The one doing the transforming is the Spirit, it says, who is also known as the Lord in verse 18. All right, so let's think about each step as we wrap it up. Okay, first, we have to behold the glory of the Lord, according to Paul. I already built the case. This is Jesus. Jesus is the glory of the Lord. To behold Jesus is to have an intimate and personal relationship with him. So this is studying him and his word. This is crying out to him in prayer. This is worshiping him from our hearts. This is a fascination with who he is and his glory. This is part of the reason why the first teaching I gave is important. The epiphany that Paul suggested is important because you've got to want to spend time with Jesus because he's the key to this transformation taking place. So what this means is that change comes, true restoration comes by interacting with Jesus. Every time you take off that mask or take off that veil and get before Jesus by opening your heart to him and his word and hearing his voice minister to you, you are beholding the glory of the Lord. And Paul presents this beholding of the Lord's glory as the key to transformation. Jesus presented this same concept with the imagery of a vine and branches, vineyard imagery. He said in John 15, verse five, he said, I'm the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. So we're to behold Jesus or abide in Jesus this means that we're to embrace a strong personal connection to Christ. The second that we drift from enjoying Jesus on a personal level in his word and prayer, we lose out on the opportunity to be transformed. So I'm not one of these pastors who's like, read your Bible and pray every day because I'm just excited about you doing that. I know that this is one of the major keys to actual transformation occurring in our lives. We have to behold the glory of the Lord. We gotta behold Jesus. We gotta abide in him. But the second thing that happens is that when we do, Paul says we are being transformed into the same image when we behold Jesus. We're being transformed from one degree of glory to another. Now this word transformed is not a word that's used in the Bible very often. Um, it's used to describe Jesus when he was transfigured on the Mount of Transfiguration. You remember that story? Peter, James, and John go with him for a time of prayer, and his glory from within begins to shine without, and they see it. He's transfigured in front of them. And it's also used in places like Romans 12 to describe the process that we're able to go through with his help. We can be transformed. To understand this transformation process, there's another English word that's helpful, the word metamorphosis. That's where this, the Greek word for transformed has the idea, metamorpho. And as we behold Christ with an unveiled face, the idea is we are morphing into, transformed into, metamorphosizing into his image. We're becoming like Jesus. Now contrast this with many of the messages that are delivered to Christians today. 
The message a lot of times is you have to change. You better grow. You better get this right. And of course, every believer has a part to play in the sanctification process. We're to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, Paul says. But the transformational nature of our relationship with Christ should not be neglected or overlooked. And what Paul tells us is that this transformation, it's a process, which is why he says it occurs from one degree of glory to another. Remember Moses? He didn't have real degrees of transformation. That's why he put the veil back on. It wasn't lasting change in his life. But we can experience that gradual, systematic, one degree of glory to another transformation as we walk with him. We become more and more like Jesus as we behold him every day of our lives. I've said this before, but it's a total myth that the older you get, the sweeter and kinder you become. It's just not reality. You have to walk with the Lord. You have to behold the Lord. And as we do, we're transformed into his image. But lastly, he says that this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. In other words, it's the Spirit of God who actually produces the change within us. In another place, Galatians 6, verse 8, Paul said, For the one who sows to his own flesh will reap from the flesh corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Sowing to the Spirit through an ongoing relationship with God will produce results, in other words. Now, one place that I love to see this exemplified is in the life of David. He's one of my favorite characters in the Bible. He was called and anointed by God. He's different from everybody else. And there came a point where his father-in-law, Saul, was very jealous of him and the fame that he had in Israel at that time. And so he tried to kill David. So David had to run into the wilderness. He went into a cave called the Cave of Adullam. And there, a group of men, 400, came out to him. It says that these were men who were distressed and indebted and discontented with Saul's reign. They had nothing going for them with Saul, so they went out to David. And they were just simply with David, it says in the Bible. They went everywhere with him. They learned from him. They watched him. Now, at the end of David's life, when he died... They gave a recounting of what these men were like. They are known frequently as the mighty men of David. They did amazing things. One of them killed one of Goliath's relatives, who was also a giant, apparently with six fingers on each hand and six toes on each foot. One of them went into a snowy pit and killed a lion. One of them wrestled a magnificent Egyptian warrior and killed him. One of them stood in a field of lentils and defended it from hundreds of invading warriors. These guys did amazing things. But here's the, the thing that always trips me out is that 
when David showed up as a teenage boy to the valley of Elah and heard the cry of Goliath saying, send me a man, there was no Israelite man willing to go fight Goliath. My assumption is that most, if not all, of the men who eventually became David's mighty men, they were there. They chickened out. They wouldn't go and fight against Goliath. But what changed? What changed is that they had spent time with David. And as the years went by, who David was impacted them. They were transformed to become like him. The original giant killer had affected the men that he was with, and they began to do things similar to what he had done. Brothers, Jesus, he wants us to spend time with him so that he can change us by his spirit to become more like him. He wants to transform our lives through a relationship with him. And look, the the character and the nature of Nate is not going to get the job done. When I spend time with Jesus, I don't change Jesus. (laughs) I don't rub off on him, but he, he rubs off on me. He's bound to transform me. And he's longing to do the same in you. He's longing to flood your heart with his word. Hear your cries ascend to him and interact with you every day. And as you do, he will transform your life. This is the walk of faith. Trusting and enjoying a God that we cannot see with our eyes and believing this relationship will change each one of us for God's glory. So why do we need transformation? Because sin is a problem. What are we being transformed into? The original intention for manhood. What Adam was supposed to be and what Jesus is, is what we're being restored into. And how does this happen? What is the process? Through daily beholding Jesus, spending time with Jesus, so that by his Spirit, He can slowly, daily, from glory to glory, from one degree of glory to another, transform us into becoming more and more like him. So I pray that this conviction would take root in your heart and find good soil within your spirit. So Father, I pray for all of us, Lord, as men. You know, we're just sitting here, a bunch of guys in this community, this Monterey Peninsula, and you want to use us as instruments here in this place. This world needs good and godly, solid men to represent you well. But Lord, we're just confessing to you, we don't have the strength by ourselves to get this job done. We're we're tempted, we, we wander. And so Lord, we pray that you, you would transform us to become more like Christ in this systematic way that is promised in this verse change us lord we pray give us the strength each day to surrender ourselves to you to hear from you to behold you so that you might change and transform our lives we thank you lord we praise you for this little gathering together for those of us who are married 
We pray for our wives next door and ask that you bless them as they interact with your word. And we pray, Lord, for the women of the church that you would bless and grow them and mature them in Christ. But Lord, we do pray that you'd not let them outpace us, but that we, Lord, as men, would set the pace and pursue you that you might grow us every day. In Jesus' name, we pray together. Amen. Thank you for listening. If you would like more teachings and information about Calvary, please visit calvary.com. We hope to see you at our next growth night on the first Sunday of every month at 5.30 p.m. Thanks, church. God bless.